All right. So for my talks here on Sundays, uh, since the, the winter began, or since January began, uh, we've been talking about the uh, attraction to stories of leaving the ordinary world for a special world. We have our diagram up on the screen we've been going through regularly. A character departs from something comfortable or something default about their experience, and that, or maybe sometimes life pushes them out, life circumstances pushes them out of what's comfortable default, and then they experience an initiation uh, as they journey through a big and sometimes scary new special world. It's full of risks, it's full of trials, it's full of hardship, it's full of potential loss and suffering. But along with the risks and the hardship, this journey also brings this character new friendships, new purpose, personal transformation, spiritual fulfillment, like all of the things that you long for in life. And so they discover all that they're meant to be. That's what our series has been doing. It's been really fun. This is the pattern of so many of the fantasy stories that uh, most people just knee-jerk uh, automatically love. So we've visited in our series so far, we've visited Star Wars, we've visited The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, we've visited Harry Potter, we've visited Moana, last, that was my last talk, that was really fun. Moana's a, a, one that's uh, very special to me. Um, and we've been working this theological idea as we visit those stories, which connects this departure, initiation, return pattern to the, uh, it, it connects all of the patterns that we see in those stories to what Jesus invites people into with his famous encouragements, to be his disciple, to pick up our crosses and follow him. Maybe even in those, in those phrases, you see that kind of, oh, pick up your cross and follow me. Go through an initiation to be transformed. So the special world that Jesus invites us into, if we read through the Gospels, is the kingdom of God. And so in this series, we've been pairing pictures from our favorite fantasy stories with different teachings from Jesus on the kingdom of God. And I'm really, really loving the insight that it's bringing. It's been great fun for me. I hope that everybody's getting a lot out of it. Uh, so overall, this insight is this. If we can trust what we cannot see, if we can trust in what is beyond our ordinary lives, our ordinary world, if we can venture into the, the special world that Jesus talks about, the kingdom of God, we here today, us, if we can trust in the spiritual side of life, the things that are unseen, the things that we can't measure, if we can do that, then journeys of transformations are not just for our favorite characters from our favorite stories, but they are for real life. They are for you and for me. So today might be my last talk in this series. We'll see. Maybe inspiration will strike. But uh, I want to look at one last key element of journeys of transformation stories that I think shines a light on Jesus and his kingdom of God. It is the way that journey of transformation stories play with the ideas of choice and prophecy. Mmm, big conceptual words, choice and prophecy, fascinating. I can see you're just like, please tell me more, Vince. What comes next? So a favorite example of this for me is, very predictably, if you've heard me speak before, Harry Potter. You're supposed to be like, oh, that's charming. Oh, yes, Harry, he loves Harry Potter. That's what you guys are supposed to say. Okay, uh, I wanna say, so there is one point in, uh, in the story of Harry Potter where Harry is speaking with his mentor, Professor Dumbledore, 
about the anguish he feels over a prophecy. And this prophecy about him is that he has to kill the evil wizard Voldemort or else be killed by Voldemort. So you think, just like, think about that kind of anguish, okay? Harry Potter is a teenager. He is not a killer. He's, he, this is a kid who's been ripped away from ordinary teenage existence by multiple tragedies. He's having to consider matters of life and death, ethics and morality, that he should never have to because of the violence and the cruelty that has marked his life. So much anguish for Harry. So that's what I want to get your mindset in, okay? But there is this just incredible belief and encouragement and wisdom from his mentor, Dumbledore, in his response to him. So Harry realizes something profound by the end of this scene that I'm going to read for you. It goes like this. But sir, said Harry, making valiant efforts to not sound argumentative, it all comes down to the same thing, doesn't it? I've got to try and kill him. Or, got to? said Dumbledore. Of course you've got to. But not because of the prophecy. Because you yourself will never rest until you've tried. We both know it. Imagine, please, just for a moment, that you had never heard that prophecy. How would you feel about Voldemort now? Think. Harry watched Dumbledore striding up and down in front of him and thought. He thought of his mother, his father, Sirius, his godfather. He thought of Cedric Diggory, his friend. All of them had been murdered by Voldemort or followers of Voldemort. He thought of all the terrible deeds he knew Lord Voldemort had done. A flame seemed to leap inside his chest, searing his throat. I'd want him finished, said Harry quietly, and I'd want to do it. Of course you would, said Dumbledore. You see... The prophecy does not mean you have to do anything. You are free to choose your way, quite free to turn your back on the prophecy. But Voldemort continues to set store by the prophecy. He will continue to hunt you, which makes it certain, really, that that one of us is going to end up killing the other, said Harry. Yes. But he understood at last what Dumbledore had been trying to tell him. It was, he thought, the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death and walking into the arena with your head held high. Some people perhaps would say that there was little to, little to choose between the two ways, but Dumbledore knew, and so do I, thought Harry, with a rush of fierce pride, and so did my parents, that there was all the difference in the world. Ooh, to me, that is power. I mean, I'm, I'm a big investor in the story of Harry Potter, so it's easy to get me, but like, it is the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death and walking in with your head held high. Harry choosing his destiny changes his experience of the hardship before him. His choice strengthens him to face it. We see confidence here. We see resolve here, right? We a fierce swell of pride. I love that. It's, I knew this, so, and I know. So did my parents know. Like, he feels it's powerful. His choice strengthens him to face it, and that makes all the difference in the world. He is not destroyed by what's ahead of him, suffering and all. 
It becomes something that will transform him into all he's meant to be. So this same choice and prophecy dynamic is present in Jesus' story and in his teachings about the kingdom of God. I want to give us a little context to help us see it. So by Jesus' time, this is the first century AD or BCE, or excuse me, CE, by Jesus' time, there had been quite a number of Jewish individuals rising to prominence and claiming a prophetic destiny to be the Jewish Messiah. That's a word that's often uh, connected with Jesus, the Christ or Messiah, as he came to be known. These individuals who claimed to be fulfilling Old Testament Bible passages, they claimed that they were like the, the, they were the prophesied and powerful everlasting king who was part of a powerful and everlasting kingdom of a future descendant of the ancient Jewish king David. And this, this person would bring justice to the oppressed Jewish people. It was a very powerful thing going on. Who will be the one to save the oppressed Jewish people? And certainly anyone who today would be from a minority population or an immigrant population would know how powerful it feels to feel like there is someone who is fighting for you. So lots and lots of energy behind this. And there were a number of individuals before Jesus comes on the scene who claim, I'm that person. I'm that savior, that messiah. And so they would point to passages like I have up for, uh, for us on the screen here. Uh, from 2 Samuel 7, this, this, this is a prophecy spoken to King David, this king that everybody wanted to, or not everybody, but these people claiming to be the Messiah wanted to tie themselves to. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestor, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in Psalm 89, another prophecy that was claimed, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. God is speaking here. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. My hand will sustain him. Surely my arm will strengthen him. The enemy will not get the better of him. The wicked will not oppress him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down his adversaries, and I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. I mean, it's just gushing, right? Just cool out, a little over the top, right, God? No, I'm just joking. So the key thing to note here is the themes of might and power and strength, the most exalted king of all the earth. This was the selling point for these near contemporaries of Jesus who claimed, yep, I'm the Messiah who's going to save the Jewish people. Might, power, strength, exalted status, that's the selling point. And history is about the time between the close of the Old Testament of the Bible and the start of the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, would back up that what was the selling point was might, power, and strength. Because the histories tell a story of these self-proclaimed Jewish messiahs rising to prominence in ways that were bloody and political. What's the fruit of might, power, and strength? Blood and politics, right? Now, when Jesus came onto the scene, and he and the gospel writers who told his story after his death they claimed this same Jewish Messiah prophetic destiny. They did cite many of these same passages that I have up here. But in addition, they also connected another theme of passages in the Jewish prophetic writings that was extremely different from this, a sort of 
balance of tension to these. And these passages were avoided by the others who seemed to be claiming, hey, I'm the, I'm the Messiah. So most notably, we have a passage like this from Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Do you notice that's the same phrase that was used in the other passage? The arm of the Lord? It's, it's interesting. So this is about the same, it's the same prophecy. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Hmm. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and he was held in low esteem. It's the opposite of being exalted. He was held in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So that is obviously not power and might and strength, right? That is not an exalted king proudly ascending to an everlasting throne and snuffing out enemies, right? This, no, this passage uh, has come to be called uh, a name in the Jewish uh, tradition, the suffering servant, it's called, Isaiah 53. And this is a picture of somebody well acquainted with being low, with grief, with loss, with losing, not winning, with powerlessness, not power. If the Jewish Messiah is prophesied to be not just a king, but also a sufferer, then the Messiah's destiny is not merely something grand that you're entitled to. The Messiah's destiny is also something hard that must be courageously chosen. And there we are again, choice and prophecy. It has to be chosen. It's not just something that just is handed to you. In Jesus' suffering and dying on a cross, God chooses his destiny, hardship and all. Like Harry Potter, Jesus is not dragged into the arena, but walks into it with his head held high, and that makes all the difference in the world. And indeed, it is Jesus' choice to be a sufferer just as much as a king that distinguishes him as a God of love. He chooses solidarity with broken, imperfect human experience. That's his destiny. He chooses self-sacrificial love, choosing to be the victim of powerful people looking for someone to blame so that the powerless in society don't have to be that victim. Jesus says, I will be the victim instead. So, choice and prophecy. Now, chosen one prophecies are not really a part of real life for any of us, I, th I think. Maybe your life is more exciting than mine. Could be. You're a chosen one of something. Nope, yep, we're all the same. Great, no chosen ones here. But I think the idea of choice and prophecy still feels connecting. So when I think of, like when we, when we talk about prophecy in this way, what I think of in real life 
is the necessary challenges that we must confront in order to pursue our hopes and dreams. You know, the, the trials and initiations in that pattern that we talked about, departure, initiation, return. We have to face necessary initiation to become all we're meant to be, to go on the journeys that are before us in our life. It is, it, there, there are hard choices. There are risks inherent in living a life that's worth living. And so it's the, the overcoming of fear of vulnerability in order to get the connection with other people you long for. Vulnerability is hard. It's an initiation. It's a try. You have to, you have to do something that is self-disclosing. That's hard. It's the embrace of humility and maybe even humiliation that it takes to repair a relationship in crisis. Sometimes you have to humiliate yourself to apologize, right? It's the thankless sticking with it when standing for a person or a people or a purpose or a cause that no one else will stand for. When that feels lonely, sticking with it is an initiation because loneliness is hard. It is the courage to take a financial risk that doesn't look like classic success on American terms in the name of pursuing higher values, values greater than financial gain. You know, to do that, you put yourself out there. That's an initiation. It is the painful honesty or emotional overload required to self-reflect, to face down our demons, and to grow. To face regret is a hard thing. To truly grow and just be totally honest about what it is we're leaving behind, that's, I mean, that, like, when you put that out there, you subject yourself to opinions. And that's hard. It's hard to have opinions floating out there about you that maybe don't feel like what's true to you. But you have to do it to get that next stage, to go to that next thing that you know is right for you. It's the pushing past obstacles and enduring scorn because of your skin color or gender or sexual orientation to make your voice heard and to try to change the rules of society. Scorn and prejudice. There's an initiation. There's something that has to be pushed past. So I wonder if any of these sound like your story or like feel like they're related to your story. Vulnerability, humiliation, Loneliness, financial risk, painful honesty, scorn, or prejudice. I wonder if any of those connect with you. You know, choosing to walk through the challenges our hopes and dreams bring us with our heads held high rather than being dragged into the arena, it does make all the difference in the world. I remember uh, one summer years ago when my brother taught me about this. So my brother was in the army at the time and was in Chicago for a few weeks for a visit and he asked me to grab coffee, which sounds really nice, right? Except for the fact that my brother had never done that in my entire life once. <laughs> so I was like, oh, co yes, co coffee, okay. So uh, my brother was an alcoholic and we had very little relationship as a result of that. 
Um, we had very little relationship at that time at all. And since we, are, we were kids, he'd been varying degrees of aggressive and cruel and resentful toward me. But you know what, this time, it'd been a while since there was any sort of dust up, so I was like, oh, okay, let's, let's do it. I think my voice like, went really high like that, you know, like when you're like half like saying, oh, sure, great, see you there. You're gonna get off at four. Um, so when we got together, I was overwhelmed. My brother explained to me that he'd been working on the 12 steps of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and was taking it really seriously, and he was currently working on steps eight and nine, which are making a list of all persons he had harmed, becoming willing to make amends to them, and making direct amends whenever possible. That's the steps eight and nine of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so he, with me across the table, uh, looked me in the eye and said that he was sorry for ways that he'd hurt me, that he loved me, and, and he asked me for my forgiveness. This was, um, this was during the first year of this church, so I was already a pastor at this time. I'd, I'd spent multiple years in various like support and community and ministry settings in my life by this point, but I can tell you I had never once been in my life as courageously vulnerable or painfully honest as my alcoholic brother in that time. It's pretty vulnerable, pretty humiliating to admit that. He was not dragged into the arena to do that with me. Do you notice that? If anything, I was dragged into the arena there. <laughs> but no, this was his head held high as he spoke to me about his regret. As he tried to reconcile with me, or at least start that process. And it was inspiring. It was, it was clear to me that it made all the difference in the world to him that he was in a process of transformation. He was not doing this because he had to. He was doing this because it was transforming him. And uh, he seemed more alive than I'd ever seen him pursuing what AA taught him, the higher values that he was attached to. He was on some journey, and he was going through the initiation, and he chose it. He didn't have to do it. He chose it. He chose his destiny. So I wanna, I wanna throw out a couple recommendations on choosing our destinies. If there is anything in this list here that just like, yes, that, that's me. I'm or, or like one step removed from there. Maybe I'd insert a different word, but that's me. What are some things that we can do? I'm going to make a few suggestions here, or a couple suggestions. First, I recommend that we look to the almighty and all-suffering God, not the exclusively almighty God. I'm going to tell you what I mean there. So I'm a big believer in this whole departure, initiation, return thing has to be in some way spiritual for us. Like, I, I'll talk a little bit about what I mean uh, for Jesus' take on that. So the exclusively almighty God is the God who was clung to by all those who claimed to be the Jewish Messiah before Jesus. It's all about might, power, and strength, right? Great, almighty. But I actually think that that God is not, in fact, as powerful as the almighty and all-suffering God that Jesus shows us. It doesn't sound right. It's like, no, no, exclusively almighty would be more powerful than almighty and all-suffering. I disagree. Because the marriage of all-suffering and almighty, it gets you resilience. And I think resilience is the most powerful thing in life. 
If you are facing prejudice or a stunted self-image or regret or overwhelming loss or weariness or exhaustion or burnout or anything like that, as you try to choose your destiny, you need a God who can empathize and endure with you through that. Otherwise, you will become that person who is just dragged into the arena of your life. You will be overcome by weariness. I've mentioned throughout this, this series of talks that uh, the way this, starting this church has pushed and challenged me personally. It has absolutely been an initiation. I have felt pushed to the brink many times of my ability to handle stress, burdens, complexity, risk. And what has encouraged me to again and again actively choose my destiny, consciously say, I'm going to keep being a pastor with my head held high, despite the challenges, what's helped me do that is feeling in prayer the closeness of a God who also knows the burdens and complexity and the risk. And exclusively almighty God can't do that, can't share with me in that, right? Because they're just almighty. They don't know powerlessness. They don't know burdens. They don't know risk. Everything's easy because you're an exclusively almighty God. That God is too distant, too removed. That God might hear my prayer from afar, but that God cannot make me feel understood or comforted. But Jesus shows us a different God. Jesus, the one who connects the suffering servant with the almighty God. I, I, so I do want to like, take a moment to say, I think the God presented in a lot of American churches is not Jesus, the almighty and all-suffering God. We're not actually presented that very often. We are usually presented an American Christian creation of an exclusively almighty God, and that's projected onto Jesus. And so if you have ever felt, if, if you've been a person who's spent time in churches before in your life, and you have gone through extended periods struggling to feel like God is close to you in the midst of a challenge, I wonder if this could at least be part of the reason for that, that you were pitched an exclusively almighty God and you weren't pitched what Jesus is, the almighty and all-suffering God. Even if we grew up in a more secular environment, that projection still dominates the common view of Jesus, right? All-powerful, almighty, but missing the other side of this, the key pivotal thing that set Jesus apart from all the others who claimed to be important. What made him different? He's all-suffering and almighty. So before we're done here today, I want to lead us in some prayer to try and practice pursuit. Because if, you've, if you have been in that state, it can be hard to like practice, well, wait, God is different than what I've been pitched my entire life or something like that. We, we can practice interacting with the Almighty and all suffering God. And so before we're done today, I do want to lead us in some of that in prayer. Okay, second. My encouragement is to try to fill up on strength and courage every chance you get. So be strong and courageous is a classic encouragement in the Bible. It's spoken many times from God to God's people, and it feels appropriate to bring in here. Be strong and courageous. Especially if I can highlight anyone whose destiny involves pushing past prejudice, racism, patriarchy, implicit bias in 2020, a presidential election year. If I can highlight you, be strong and courageous. 
Don't lose heart. Don't become passive and dragged into the arena. In that case, you will lose your ability to be effective to your purpose and your cause, and the experience for you will be drudgery rather than purposeful and transformational. That is so hard to keep up the strength and the courage when it just drains, right? I mean, seasons will come when our strength and our courage levels are high, and when that happens, awesome. But the human condition is that we leak, right? Gradually, we'll require maintenance to be filled up again. So my encouragement is that is to know, is to try to hold on to the belief that maintenance is possible, that we, there is strength and courage out there for us to draw on. So in a spiritual sense, again, I'm a big believer that a spiritual element has to be here for us to get through initiation and let it be transformative and not just ruin us. In a spiritual sense, Jesus, I think, is a well from whom we can at any time draw strength and courage from. Last week, Kyle taught us a prayer, and I'll, I'll punt back to that because I think it's uh, helpful here. The prayer was, God for us, we call you Father. God alongside us, we call you Jesus. God within us, we call you Holy Spirit. I wonder if you can like, use your imagination and prayer to picture each of those positionings of God. Where is God? God is for me, okay? God is alongside me, okay? God is within me. My hunch is that if you try those out for size, one is gonna, is gonna like stand out to you, and then that might, that might like make the prayer kind of, the wheels start turning on the prayer. Oh, yeah, okay, that feels right to me. God, maybe it's God alongside me, Jesus, or maybe it's God within me. But whichever one feels right to you as you use your imagination, that is a way that prayer can just kind of start, the wheels can start turning. Okay, yeah, God, what does that look like? Let me play that scene out in my mind's eye. And we can feel ourselves strengthened or brought more courage. To pass on another Harry Potter and Professor Dumbledore exchange, we might ask Harry's question when I talk about that kind of prayer. Is this real or is this just happening inside my head? To which I think God's reply might be very similar to Dumbledore's. Of course it's happening inside your head, but why on earth should that mean it's not real? I like that. And then also in a human sense, I think there are others around you from whom you can draw strength and courage. Now, we might feel that the well is run out for us, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the well is run out for somebody next to you, and it doesn't mean that their well is dry for you. One simple way to start a conversation that I find uh, in our experience uh, in this church kind of gets people sharing struggles and makes it more likely that we can pass strength and courage to each other, draw that from one another. It's a pair of questions. I'll pitch it to you. It's what's something that's giving you life right now, and then the reverse of that. What's something that is draining life from you right now? It's a a simple conversation starter. We use it a ton in this church in different settings, and it can often, like maybe in a conversation you didn't expect to get as as helpful or as deep as you thought, it can actually move things along. And so I'll, I'll throw that to you at the chance that it might help. Being dragged into the arena of what's ahead of us is no way to live. We can look ahead and we can see what's ahead of us. We know what's ahead of us if we're on a journey. Being dragged into the arena is no way to live. Life is in choosing our destinies with our heads held high. And that's what I want to pray for us today. So would you all stand with me and I'll invite uh, our band to start getting set and I'm going to pray for us.
All right, you can keep your eyes open or you can close your eyes, whatever helps you to feel relaxed as we pray. Move my shoulders a little bit, I'm a little tense. Okay, I'm gonna pray. Let me begin with this prayer that Kyle taught us. God for us, we call you Father. God alongside us, we call you Jesus. God within us, we call you Holy Spirit. So in your mind's eye now, as I'm going to leave some space for quiet, as we take a minute to let prayer play out for each of us, if any of those stand out to you, just stick with it. Stick with one of those. And if none of them stand out to you, great. Pick something else. I present to you, God, the journeys that are represented in this room, and particularly the initiations and the trials that are before us. It's different for each of us. It's unique for each of us. But there are great similarities in that they are hard, and they threaten to bury us, and they threaten to leave us camped out in bitterness, to get stuck in pain, to not want to move forward, to just feel burnt out, whatever it is, those are the similarities between all of our journeys. And so we, I ask now that you would be close to us as the God who knows those sorts of complexities and challenges, who knows what it's like to take a risk to do something that is the hardest thing you've ever done. And let us feel your closeness now, that we are, each of us, in a very, like, deep spiritual way, are not alone. I pray that we would feel that because there's other people in our lives, but right now I just zoom in on, like, you as an individual in your own skin are not actually alone. Pray that we would feel encouraged for the initiations ahead of us. I pray that we would feel strengthened and, be, and, and feel the courage level in us rise to choose what is before us and not to be dragged into the arena. I pray that you would help us to hold our heads high, that we can experience all the life in that, that we can feel transformed by that. We don't want life to just happen to us. 